Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the fascinating things that got me so excited about telling this story was you have this term, the method or method acting, and people who teach it and practice it will tell you it is one thing. And then the public will tell you it's this other thing that is almost diametrically opposed to it. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I am your other host, Karen Hahn. Karen, I recognize the voice in the cold open. That was our working co-host, Isaac Butler. How come he gets to be the guest this week? It's because he paid me off. I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's because he wrote a new book called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Wow. Well, anyone who's been listening to the show for a while will probably have heard some stories from Isaac's writing process of that book in earlier episodes. But in case people don't know, what is the book about? It is all about the history of method acting, and I I won't go further than that because I actually do ask Isaac to explain (laughs) at further length what it is, and he's the expert, so just listen on. He sure is the expert. Okay, well, I'm really excited to hear this interview, but first, I believe that you have an extra segment for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? We talk a little bit about the really incredible scale that the book is operating on and how Isaac figured out what was and wasn't necessary in terms of larger historical context for explaining the history of the method Mm. and just how much he wrote and consequently had to cut down. Oh, okay. That sounds (laughs) fantastic. And fortunately, it's incredibly easy to subscribe to Slate Plus so you can hear it. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like The Culture Gabfest and The Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash working plus. Okay, let's hear Karen's conversation with Isaac Butler. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, Isaac. How are you? It's surreal to be on the other side. (laughs) All right. So just so we don't disorient our listeners too much, you are on today to talk about your new book, which is also so exciting. Can you tell us what your book is called and what it's about? So my new book is called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. And it traces the roughly 100-year-long birth, rise, and decline of the method, of method acting, of this new idea of what acting should do and what it should be that transformed uh, popular culture first in Russia, thanks to this director, actor, and theorist named Konstantin Stanislavsky, and then in the United States, thanks to this man named Lee Strasberg, and a whole bunch of other people, some marquee names like Aaliyah Kazan. Marlon Brando, Stella Adler, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Ellen Burstyn. These are these are all people you'll meet uh, over the course of the book. How did you settle on a topic like this? Because I feel like, for me at least, who where I'm like sort of a method noob, I guess it seems like such a huge undertaking. Yes, I probably should have realized that before I (laughs) I wrote a proposal for it. Um, The truth of the matter is, is that Ben Hyman, my amazing editor at Bloomsbury, was also the editor for The World Only Spins Forward, the book I did with Dan Coyce. And we were out to lunch to celebrate or, you know, whatever, one of those periodic lunches one gets with your editor. And he said, hey, why don't you propose another book? And I racked my brain for ideas and I came up with a bunch of them. And some of them I were like, that's too weird. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and I said, hey, I have a bunch of ideas here. Here's a few. And one of them was doing it was just then called the method of history at that point. Yeah. And he was like that one. Get me a proposal for that one. And so um, then I you know, started doing the research process for what would become the book and really realizing that it was a really interesting compelling story that had a good plot, which I think was actually really important for me and for the book, because as you point out, it is a huge subject. It's And there's a lot going on. And if you have a compelling plot that you can kind of hang that on, then you can start to structure that, figure out what's going to be included and what's not, and also keep the reader's attention for what's a pretty big journey. You mentioned in the introduction that you were previously an actor and had your own experiences with Mm -hmm. method acting and that it's something that you've been thinking about for a long time. How do you approach the research process for something that you're already familiar with? Like, is there any kind of measure of, I guess, blank slating it or what's your process? So what I started with was some idea of what I knew, which was actually from the perspective of today, nothing. I knew nothing, John Snow. Um, but it was probably more than the average person knew about the method. But, you know, I, I knew some stuff about the group. I knew that uh, this stuff had started in Russia with Stanislavski. I knew a lot of the sort of urban legends that have mm-hmm. emerged around it and everything like that. So I had some ideas of the story. And then I just asked myself, well, what is it I need to know to tell this story? Right. And 
the first thing I needed to know were some actual factual stuff, you know, like, like who was this Stanislavski guy and what was his life like? And <laughs> luckily there's three biographies of him that you can go out there and read. And then it would be like, okay, well, this biography is mentioning the Russian critic Vissarion Belinsky, right? And it's like, well, who is Belinsky? And then you go and you read some stuff about him. And so it was really just about paying attention to whatever questions came up in my mind every time I was encountering a new thing of research. And then following those questions as far as they wanted me to go would then provoke new questions and new questions and new questions. Mm -hmm. And then I would start talking to other you know experts in the field and they would recommend books to me and I would go out and read those or I would go to a research library or whatever. But it was always motivated by what do I need to know to tell this story? Yeah. And once enough of that had started happening, things started knitting together. You start to notice the coincidences or like, oh, this thing happened in 1898. This other thing also is happening in 1898. Isn't that interesting? Or, you know, whatever it is. And they just start kind of coming together and coalescing and, and new, more complicated questions come out of that. Some of them then become the kinds of questions that can't actually be answered by research. They can be answered by original writing and thinking. Mm -hmm. And then the book starts flowing, you know? <laughs> um, I, you have sort of answered my follow-up question where I, I wanted to kind of talk about the book process as well with regards sure. to like working on my book I have pretty clearly delineated chapters and the way that I've been working on it is like going out and researching what I know that I need for this one chapter finishing that and then starting that again for the next one because yeah. it's kind of more clearly defined I guess but it seems like you had to take kind of a, a broader approach and try to gather everything at once. Is that how you would define it? And is also, is that how you prefer to work on a project? So actually I had a really specific process for the first part of the book okay. that I then abandoned for the second and third <laughs> part of the book. And so the first part of the book takes place in Russia. Mm. It starts in the 1890s. It ends in the 1920s. But what I did for part one because I was also really struggling to not get distracted by my computer. So what I did for part one was for each of the chapters, I would do the exact same thing that you did, Karen. I was like, I'm going to write one chapter a month. And how I did that was I researched them for two weeks and then I outlined them in an incredibly detailed way for a week, including like what quotes I was going to use and with citations in a Google doc that I then, and then I bought an iPad for this purpose. <laughs> I would take the iPad with the Google Doc, but in work offline mode. Yeah, to, yeah. To uh, the now no longer with us coffee shop, 61 Local on Bergen Aww. Street. R.I.P. Um, and I would handwrite the chapter. Wow. And then I would type the chapter up after I was mm -hmm. done with it. And sometimes the handwriting would be like, uh, you know, fact here, TK. It's not like I knew every. <laughs> um, and so that's how I would do that after every month. Mm-hmm. And that was really useful because I really needed to not be on the internet for long stretches of time. It was really interfering with my work. And also, I think handwriting, it helped me figure out the voice. I write differently with my hand than I do typing. And you also get like a little freebie revision when you type up the handwriting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> once that was done and I got to part two, once part one was done, which is say a, a bad first draft of part one was done and I started moving on to part two, I realized that the characters overlapped so much and the time was a bit compressed because then we're going from 1920 to 1940. Uh, and 
actually, well, and eventually it became 1920 to 1950, but I didn't know that when I set out to do it, <laughs> um, that I wanted to do as much of the research as possible and then write it in one go. And so that's how I did part two. And then part three radically changed because part three was written during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. There was a month I had to take off to do childcare. And because yeah. I was frankly so anxious that I couldn't write or read for a month, you know, living in New York City. And then we uh, moved out of the city and I brought a suitcase of books with me. Wow. Um, and then any other books I could load onto my device, I did. And then I was just, you know, then I had to, I had a different schedule because I was, someone had to be watching Iris. And, you know, so the third had a much more chaotic I would say, way of going about it. And can you tell us a little bit about structuring the book? You you mentioned a little bit about um, kind of dividing it up into acts, but I, I wanted to know if you could go a little bit deeper into that. Um, you mentioned that you wanted to tackle the book like a biography. Was there ever any doubt on that front? Like, were there other approaches that you were thinking of or tried? Um, how did you decide on the acts and then the chapters therein? It was always very clear to me that it was going to have a three-act structure. I yeah. wanted it to have a theatrical structure because it's a book that's primarily about theater makers. And so that was a kind of cute idea. <laughs> and because it breaks up actually pretty neatly into thirds, there's a Russian section and then there's the emergence of it in the United States, uh, these ideas in the United States during the Great Depression with the group theater. And then that sort of gets you all the way through the founding of the actor studio. And then the next part, which is about its emergence and its sort of stratospheric rise to becoming this mainstream idea of acting in America, that just seemed to break very easily into thirds. Yeah. Uh, The biography idea came really early. And part of it was that it seemed to me that these ideas were living things, that they kept changing and transforming and people's thoughts about them kept changing and transforming. It was not fixed. And I also thought that if I made the idea the protagonist, then... That would really help me figure out how to include and not include various information because there's lots of people in this book, but you don't get everything about their life stories usually, right? And so um, trying to figure out like what didn't belong, you need some rules about that that you can have some rigor around. And so the rule that I came up with was the method is the protagonist of this story. Mm -hmm. And the nonfiction form that has a protagonist is either a biography or memoir, right? And so I started Mm -hmm. thinking of it as a biography. That's amazing. And I guess to sort of jump off of the back of that question, the whole task of this book is one that's kind of inherently difficult because defining the method is difficult. Yeah. And, and kind of defining Stanislavski's teachings is difficult as well. What was it like trying to pin down all these ideas that people before you also struggled to pin down? I mean, it was sort of freeing in a way that people had so much trouble pinning this stuff down because then I'm like, <laughs> oh, maybe there is no getting it right. And what Uh you can do is in a fair minded, open hearted way, be as honest as possible about what we know and what we don't know and what we're what people are confused about and what they aren't. Also, those moments of confusion are often great plot points. They're great story (laughs) points. You know, like if you view these arguments less as, okay, my job going into this, I have these two people who disagree in their interpretation of it. And my job is to figure out who's right. Well, that's one kind of way of approaching it. And the way I usually try to approach it is these two people have this fight about this thing. Isn't that interesting? And and isn't what came out of that fight interesting? That's all usually way more interesting than what I would have to say about it. There are some things that I weigh in on. 
is Marlon Brando a method actor? The answer is no, he's not. And he would tell you mm-hmm. he's not, and he would get mad at you if you said he was. <laughs> uh, uh, even though, and so, but then that provokes a really interesting question, which is, well, why does everyone think he's a method actor? You know, mm-hmm. as long as you keep getting back to interesting questions, the reader's going to have those questions, and 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 that creates a, a sense of narrative tension that helps pull them through the book. Um. That said, there are things we do know for sure, and I didn't, or as close to for sure as possible, I didn't want to be cutesy about that stuff. There are core ideas at the center of the method. There are actual techniques. There are actual things that people taught and did. And those things had a huge impact, particularly on American dramatic writing, acting, and directing in theater and film and TV. And I wanted to be clear about what those were, because one of the arguments about the book is, you know, the method is one of the big ideas of the 20th century. It, it is one of the, the things that just transforms how we consider human experience. And so obviously there's something real there. It's not that it has no content at all. And so you have to be very clear about that when those moments arise. In kind of making all these storylines work together, do you think that your idea of what the method is changed at all? Or do you find, did you find that kind of challenging to, I guess, make it coalesce? I would say that my feelings about the method changed constantly. You know, there were times mm-hmm. in the middle, you know, you read a bunch of stuff from people of the era calling it a load of crap and you're like, oh, maybe it's a load <laughs> of crap. You know, but then you watch a movie starring Jane Fonda or Sidney Poitier or Paul Newman or whatever and you're like, oh, actually, no, there's something real here because this is this is great <laughs> acting. This is really great acting and it is different than what came before. Um, so my emotional attachment to it changed all the time, you know, depending on what day it was. Um in terms of my ideas about what it is, I actually tried to just be as open-minded about that as possible and to not have super fixed ideas and to go where the research took me in as honest a way as possible. You know, like how reporters say, go where the story takes you. I tried to kind of do that with the method. And and again, there are things that are actually like, this is 100% the method. There are certain exercises, for example, that Lee Strasberg taught that are the core of method acting practice. And like, we know what they are because people wrote them down and people teach them. He wrote in his posthumously published book, he describes them. So it's like, you know, there's stuff there that's very firm. We'll be back with more of Karen's conversation with Isaac Butler. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Listeners, we want to hear from you, whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guess you'd like to hear on the show, or share your creative triumphs. Drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's return to Karen's conversation with Isaac Butler. 
You mentioned this a little bit, um, both in our conversation previously, and as well as in a previous episode of Working, where you said you were reading a lot of fiction while writing this book because you wanted it to have narrative momentum mm -hmm. for it to feel like a, a real story yeah. playing out. Can you talk a little bit about how you make something that is all in the past or that can be kind of is all over really in terms of what you're the sources that you're drawing from, how you make that coherent, how you make that into something that feels alive and moving? Yes, I can, because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually. And mm -hmm. um, it all comes down to two things, structure and narrative tension. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about narrative tension first. A, a writer I saw once talk on a panel when I was in graduate school said this thing that I've taken with me ever since, which is that narrative tension is like money in the bank. And any time you want to do anything in your book that isn't generating narrative tension. You're spending mm -hmm. narrative tension. So you're withdrawing Ooh. money from the bank with your ATM card, right? And he said- That's so interesting. Yeah. And then he said, the way you generate narrative tension is to create questions in the reader's mind that they want to see answered. And so in a murder mystery, whodunit, right? Um, mm -hmm. In a thriller, what's gonna happen next? Is this character gonna survive? Um, but the truth of the matter is all sorts of stuff that isn't genre work trades in narrative tension. It's it, You can have stuff that doesn't have conventional plot or character or whatever that still might have a, a question you're getting the reader to think about. Great essays do this, I think, because you get so excited by the way the person is thinking that you're like, what new thought are they going to have next? That's a form <laughs> of narrative tension in a way. And so I was really, really cognizant of that, of making this. What questions was I trying to get into the reader's head? You know, how could I get them as close to the events in a kind of you are there way as possible? Yeah. Because if the reader wants to know what happens next, you can spend that that money, so to speak, on all sorts of other stuff like thematic content or, you know, there's a lot of complicated ideas that I need to take space and time to explain. Um, and if you just read those complicated ideas in a row, it's going to kind of be boring. I mean, I think I did a good job of explaining them in an exciting way, but like you still, you know, you have to have managed the tension in such a way that the reader is interested in hearing about that then, you know? Um, the second thing is structure, which came in a way out of Stanislavski's ideas, which was this idea of the problem. And Stanislavski taught that characters are always doing things and they're doing things in response to a problem. They have what he called the Russian word translates as task slash problem. Uh, and that's what motivates action. There's a thing they need and then they do something to get it. And that could be saying a line. It's not always physical. Um, and so I kept thinking about where are the problems? And I kept thinking about how do we get from problem to action to problem to action? This character has a problem. This subject, because they're a real person, so we call them subjects. Konstantin Stanislavski <laughs> has a problem. Uh, Russian theater is moribund and too attached to convention. That motivates him to take action, founding the Moscow Art Theater. And so actually using that kind of theatrical script analysis way of thinking about dramatic action really helped me structure these chapters that were always going from someone who has a problem to someone who has a problem to someone who has a problem. That's fascinating. And I, I actually did have one more structure question, sure. um, which 
it has to do with just how much time the book spans. Like, obviously, there's a lot of method to get in there. How did you figure out how you wanted to pace it? Like, how did you figure out what could be compressed? What kind of had to be taken through with a comb? A lot of that grew organically out of, you know, I would Mm -hmm. be writing it and then I would read it over and I'd be like, this is boring. I need to hand wave past this. I mean, I mean, some of it was really just trusting my own boredom. There comes a point yeah. as a writer where you can't trust your own boredom because you've read the book so many times. Like this is like as you're getting mm-hmm. to the end of copy edits and stuff, you you grow to hate the book. I mean, it happens to yeah. everyone that I know. Um, uh, I'm yeah. just warning you, Karen. I'm in that stage oh, right okay? now yeah. where I'm like, I just want it to get yeah, published. Yeah, yeah. I, as soon as it's out there, I will love it. But right now I'm like, <laughs> I always had again, this thing of like the method is the story. Harold Clerman's not mm-hmm. the story. Even Stanislavski isn't the story. Even Lee Strasberg isn't the story. The method is the story. So what is happening to the method in this moment? And what does a reader need to understand to know what's happening to the method? So to give an example, uh, I barely talk about Arthur Miller in this book at all, even though he's a very important writer and he's important to the method. Death of a Salesman is an important production, but it's not as important as Streetcar Named Desire and they happen in the same year. And so I just had to make a choice that it's like, I'm going to focus on the one that's really important and that one is Streetcar. I would also say that, again, my editor was really great about this. He was an outside reader and I had another outside, I had two other outside readers while I was writing it, Catherine Nichols and Mark Armstrong. And Catherine mm-hmm. and Mark were both really good at being like, eh, you're probably going on too much here. You probably don't need mm-hmm. this or I don't understand this idea. Can you say more? And so between yeah. all of that feedback, uh, I, that also helped fig- me figure it out. I don't think I could have figured it out on my own. Just trusting my gut. Although good gut. I think it's good gut. But, you know, you everyone needs outside help. We mentioned a little bit at the beginning that you used to be an actor and that your own experiences with um, these ideas kind of informed your interest in it and why this was a subject that you wanted to come back to. Tell us a little bit about your personal relationship to the acting techniques in the book. Like, do you feel like the fact that you had experience with them made you kind of more aware of how to talk about these things? I do because I had actually done the exercises in question. I was a child stage actor. In mostly musical theater. And uh, I performed at this theater called the Studio Theater, which still exists. And its founder, Joy Zinneman, was the director who I worked with. And uh, she really wanted me to take acting seriously, which in part meant learning Stanislavski, you know. And so for my 13th birthday, she gave me a copy of Richard Boleslavsky's Acting the First Six Lessons, which is the first book in English. 13th birthday. It's the first book in English about Stanislavski's ideas. Uh, You know, um, Richard Boleslavsky is really the man who brought those ideas to the United States and taught them. Uh, When I was in high school, they invited me to take the adult level classes at the Studio Theater's acting school which were the the first two years were called principles of realism and character and emotion. And so they were all really Stanislavski based. And I learned how to break down scripts into beats and figure out what your objective is. And, you know, we did animal pantomimes. Uh, I remember one time I was a kangaroo and lots, <laughs> all sorts of other exercises and in character and emotion, we had to do an exercise where we had to bring in a physical object that had deep, importance to us. And there were two reasons behind this. One was when you watch the other students present their objects, you would see how emotion really looked. And it doesn't look like the conventional ways we think that it looks, you know, like oftentimes people don't cry. They try not to cry, for example. And then, um, but we would also quite possibly discover something that we could use 
to get in touch with those emotions ourselves and to trigger them should we ever need them in our work. And it was a really, I remember a lot of that night. It's actually the only part of that class I really truly remember deeply is that night. Cause you know, there was like a guy who had like the cane that belonged to his dead father. Uh, and let's, I just remember him looking down at the ground and tapping it while he was telling us the story. Like he never didn't like, that was how the emotion expressed itself. He didn't cry. He would just stop and be silent and tap it on the ground and hmm. like touch it in this very significant way. Anyway, when it came my turn, it was, it was an obituary was the object of a friend, an older friend who worked at the theater who had died of AIDS six months prior, I want to say. And I just, I just fucking lost it. I mean, I was like sobbing. It was just, I was completely out of control. And Nancy, the wonderful teacher who, who died a few years ago, sadly, um, Nancy very kindly kind of managed me out of that. But, you know, it was just a really intense experience, you know? And so as an, an adult, once I stopped being an actor, when you would read about, you know, people talking about, oh, these sense memory exercises, these emotion memory exercises, they're really dangerous. I was like, oh, I've actually done one of those, you know? I had this intense experience with it. I guess we sort of talked about this at the beginning of our conversation as well, where the misconceptions about the method are kind of, there are just Legion. so many of them. And especially, I, I feel like you weigh in on this on Twitter a lot as well, just because people tend to tweet the most wrong opinions, I guess, about the at method. Me. What How happens is the- if someone tweets <laughs> something about the method that's incorrect, now people know that it's like a stimulus response thing. They'll just be like, quote tweet, like, oh, at Parabasis should weigh in on this. <gasps> Um, it's funny because, you know, I, I try to resist my inner pedant. I don't want to be a pedantic person. And I do think that language evolves. I am at heart, a descriptivist, the meanings of words change over time and they change socially. And that's fine by me, but it is one of the fascinating things about this story. One of the things that got me so excited about telling this story was you have this term, the method or method acting and people who teach it and practice it will tell you it is one thing. And then the public will tell you and journalists and sometimes film actors will tell you it's this other thing that is almost diametrically opposed to it. So how does something become its opposite in the public eye? That's an interesting story to me. And so, you know, chasing that down was really fun. I try to sort of plant seeds of it. I mean, there's a trail of breadcrumbs that leads up to the kind of reveal that, hey, this thing you think is the method is not the method that used to be in Mm -hmm. the intro. And then we were just like, this is too confusing. We're leaving this out. But, you know, there's stuff in part one that's deliberately planted there so that in part three, when we talk about it, (laughs) reference it, it's sort of like, see, I was telling you this. Um, People think the method is what Daniel Day-Lewis does or what uh, Robert De Niro did for Raging Bull or uh, on a sort of self-parody level what Jared Leto does, right? Where you do this sort of very complicated uh, form of research where you're sort of trying to live as close to the way your character lives. And then when you're on set, you don't break character. Maybe you rewrite your lines to be more like what you think the character is. You're sort of very serious all the time and you're, uh, maybe self-important or, you know, whatever it is, that's what people think the method is. The actual method are the, 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 what I call the private method sometimes is, um, <laughs> actually about unlocking the individual actor's idiosyncrasies and psychology and emotion the actor the actor's own material because actors are both painter and paint and so it's about making sure your paint palette has as many colors as possible so that you can then bring that to the character so it's actually rooted in the self and individuality and emotion and psychology um not research and behavior 
And in fact, Lee Strasberg, the codifier of the method and the person who taught it, was very opposed to actors doing too much research. He thought it, it, it ruined them. He thought it was too, you know, in the head and it would distract them from what they needed to be doing. I have one last kind of book process question. Um, at what point, because I think this is something that a lot of writers struggle with, at what point do you decide that you are done with it? Like, aside from feeling tired of it, like, at what point do you decide this is done, this tells the story it needs to without going too far or without not having enough? Well, six months after your deadline. <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. I did get one extension on my deadline because of COVID. You know, mm-hmm. I, I had to write my editor. And yeah, was like, I don't actually know when I'm going to write right now because I'm like a full-time stay-at-home dad. So, you know, and he was really cool about it. But um, I wrote a full coherent draft and then I read the whole thing. And then I knew what the changes were that I wanted to make to it. Some of which required a little bit of additional research. But most of it was just cutting things and rephrasing things and stuff like that. And then I did that pass. I, I did one or two more passes. I think it was only one to do a bunch of cuts. And then I sent it to my editor. And then he said, you know, this is in good shape, but you need to do one more full re- rewrite before I do line edits. You need to cut at least 10,000 words. And here are some thoughts about what I think the book is really about. And that was actually one of the most useful things he did to me was to articulate to me, this is what your book is doing. And he didn't even say you need to do that more. It wasn't prescriptive. It was literally like, this is what your book is doing. And he said, so uh, just to think about that as you figure out what to keep and what not to keep. And and I did a big rewrite with that. Again, it was mostly cutting stuff, you know, uh, and then wrote an intro and afterward and sent it to him. And then he was like, great, we're basically ready to do line edits, except uh, your intro doesn't work at all. You need a completely different intro. Let's hop on the <laughs> phone and discuss it. We hashed out what an intro would yeah. be and uh, which is basically the intro you you have in your hands right now. And then you know, eventually you get to the point where he says, you know, this is done enough that it is submitted, which means you get the, you get the next checkup from your advance and it kicks into gear this whole, um, production process. So the weird thing is, is that when it's your first time writing your book by yourself, you think, ah, I have submitted it. It's in production now. I'm basically done. You are nowhere near done. It is not, uh, (laughs) you know, they say it's a marathon, not a sprint, but it's actually a series of marathons there. You know, I hired an outside fact checker to read through it. Uh, I went, when going through and doing the notes, I did another round of fact checking. It was copy edited multiple times. The last round of which was just making sure all the names were spelled right. There was a guy Mm -hmm. at Bloomsbury who did that. You know, there's like a thousand little things. So on some level, I felt like the book was done when they said, okay, we have literally sent it to the printers. You cannot change anything more. Mm-hmm. Um, but there might yeah. be, <laughs> there will probably be little teeny factual things that were incorrect that we have to fix for the paperback. That happens all the time with, with nonfiction, you know? Um, even though we did all this other work to make sure that didn't happen, it's like, it's a big book. You're going to get something, you know, the likelihood is something in it is something small and it is is incorrect. So in a weird way, it feels like I'm still not done um, and that I'll never be done. <laughs> <laughs> but but in terms of the big thing of like, okay, this is done. The nice thing is, is that like, in a sense, your boss tells you. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's f- weirdly freeing in a way. <laughs> yeah. It's not out of your hands at a certain point. 
Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your method, writing about the method. Um, if you enjoyed the stories that Isaac told about the method, a lot of them are in the book. So I highly recommend going out to get a copy because it is fantastic. Thank you again so much for taking the time to talk with us. This was such a pleasure. It's fun to be a guest on this show. Why does anyone <laughs> ever turn us down when we ask them? <laughs> this is a subtweet, yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Karen, I absolutely love that interview, though I admit I had to keep pausing it to make notes. It was <laughs> it was really full of, I guess you could call it actionable advice. <laughs> I am definitely going to be using Isaac's technique of figuring out where the book needs to go by paying close attention to the questions that I ask during the research process. Is that a technique you've used? I think... Only on a much smaller degree, because I think the, to a certain degree, it's something that we all do kind of intuitively, whether it's on a micro or macro scale. For instance, if you're writing about a movie and you have to talk about the era that it was made in, but you don't remember what year that it came out, you just go to Google and look it up. And that's mm. its own sort of little research that you have to do to kind of keep the story moving. Um, that said... I feel like in terms of shaping on a larger scale where the story is going, it's a little harder to keep that in mind sometimes, especially for me. I think I feel it more when I'm working on a fiction project than nonfiction, because you naturally kind of come up with these questions as of like, what's the character arc? What's their motivation? What are they doing? Why are they doing this? And then you have to figure out how best to answer those questions for the reader um, in order to keep the story moving and also keep it compelling and convincing. Oh, man, that's so interesting. Karen, I know your book is still shrouded in mystery, so you can't get too specific. But you mentioned when you were talking with Isaac that you have been working chapter to chapter rather mm -hmm. than taking a sort of global research it all and then write it all approach that Isaac used for some of his book. Mm -hmm. Still, have you found that your methods have evolved from the chapters you wrote first to the chapters you've worked on most recently? I love to be shrouded in mystery, so thank good, you for saying that. <laughs> um, I think the biggest change in terms of my process from the first chapter to the chapter that I'm currently working on has more to do with finding a little bit of a stride. Like, I think we mm -hmm. talked about this a little bit in our previous conversation uh, after your Rebecca Mead interview, where you kind of become more confident through repetition, where you kind of have a better sense of what you're doing and what the necessary steps are to get from point A to point B. And I feel like I feel more comfortable with putting together a chapter. Um, that said, 
I almost like wish that my methodology had evolved more or that I had like more of a complicated answer to say. I, I will say that one of the things that I'm working on after the chapter that I'm currently working on like has involved getting a research assistant to help me mm. out, um, which is a totally new thing for me. And I was almost scared to say yes when my editor suggested it because I was like, I always do my own stuff. I don't want to burden somebody else with figuring out like what I don't know. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing for me to start experiencing in terms of book method, I guess. Yeah. But that's kind of the extent of my answer in that oh, respect. Oh my goodness. I, I, I'm definitely going to have to come back to you on that one. It's almost like <laughs> you've been saying, no, I don't need a stunt double. I do my own stunts. And then yeah. the stunt gets really complicated and dangerous. And you're like, okay, I'll take the double. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm not a tattoo person, but if I were going to get one, the things that Isaac said about managing narrative tension, about writers either banking it or spending it, that would be pretty high on the list of potential pieces of body art that I might consider getting. You hear that around fiction quite often, but we're both working on nonfiction books. His book was a work of nonfiction. So that insight really hit me hard. Did it also resonate with you? It didn't resonate as much as I would want it to, but I think that has a lot to do with the scale of projects that I've worked on to this point. Mm. Um, like, I think we've discussed it a little bit in previous episodes of working as well, where my experience in media has primarily been like, churn out a piece a day, and that doesn't really leave that much room to work on long form stuff. Yeah. Um, that said, uh, I feel like I, I relate to it a little bit in terms of working on my book, just because the chapters are naturally longer than anything that I would have written at Slate, um, mm. for the most part. Um, and also, I think in writing feature scripts, because that by necessity, is a much kind of bigger project that demands f the writer to figure out exactly where the narrative beats have to fall and what the overall arc is going to look like. For instance, you can't reveal your secret too early or else the ending kind of just withers, like you don't have enough material for the end. Um, so in that respect, it does resonate with me. And I, I feel like I'll th be thinking about narrative structure more as I return to my book, having talked to Isaac about it, where it's like, oh, if, if someone like him is doing this, like I should probably also do that. All right. Although just the answer that you just gave me suggests that you have been doing it, but kind of, <laughs> as you said before, intuitively, because mm -hmm. that's exactly what he was talking about, albeit on a feature script. As I said earlier, the process of Isaac writing his book has been part of the content of this show, which is about the creative process, since we relaunched back in April 2020. So I really felt the power of his saying, look, you have to cut anything that seems boring. And what he didn't say was, even if you've spent a ton of time researching and writing it, you know, the swans still need to be beheaded. But that's so hard. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice about just learning to be okay with killing your darlings? I think my perspective on it is potentially extremely silly and kind of beholden to our very social media um, intensive age. Mm. Because what I would say is that my biggest consolation in terms of cutting things is that you can always share those stories later or on a different platform. Mm. For instance, I really love doing interviews and I would do them for Slate and all the other sites that I worked for 
a lot of the time, some of the answers that I really liked would have to get cut just because I didn't really have the word count or they weren't super relevant to the topic that we were discussing. Um, And the way that I kind of got around feeling bad about it where I was like, oh, I wish people could read this is that I would just kind of tweet out those tidbits after the piece ran where it's like, here's the actual thing. And then here's the things that I cut from it as sort of like a a DVD bonus feature, you know, where it's like, this is still fun, but it didn't have to be in the movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I'm very aware that these days, there's kind of a reason to not to hold back material, that would be crazy. Mm -hmm. But if there are things that you have had to cut that's topical and that, you know, you've done all the research, you've put in the writing time and it just didn't make it into the book, mm-hmm. you can use it for newsletters or to pitch as pieces that you hope will be published around the time the book comes out that kind of act as like marketing devices because nobody... Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, you can use, well, you know, hopefully you can sell first or second serial rights, but you know, there's also a very effective way of promoting your book by writing about a related topic for another outlet. And that's really great. Mm-hmm. I guess our answer boils down to, well, you can use those to, for self-promotion. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, no shame in it. Yeah. Uh, Isaac also mentioned seeking feedback from trusted outside readers before submitting a piece of writing to his editor. Have you done that? And how did you find them? Or how would you find them? I have done it. Mm. And I I have to admit here that it's something that I hate doing, not because I don't think that I'll get valuable feedback back, but because I feel like generally my self-confidence in my work is pretty low. Mm. And sending it to people is a struggle in that respect, because I don't want someone that I really admire to be like, this is bullshit. This is bad. (laughs) You have to go back to page one. Um, Luckily, that hasn't happened yet, which I feel like I should feel better about and more confident in showing people my work about, but it it just hasn't happened yet. (laughs) Um, As far as finding those people go, though, um, it usually will have to be someone who's close to me because Mm -hmm. I don't want to show something that personal or that raw to somebody who isn't it isn't somebody that I totally trust. Yeah. Um, and especially in terms of writing, it helps if it's somebody who's writing admi- I admire because I know that they know what they're doing and that they're good at it and mm. therefore will have, hopefully have something actionable and helpful to say to me after they've read what I've done. And I, I guess as part of a smaller concern, you also have to know that that person won't it just immediately go tell everybody what you're working <laughs> on. Especially, again, if it's like a book where it's like, I can't talk about this until it gets announced or anything yeah. like that. Wow. Um, what about you? I never have. And actually... Really? Um, well, I mean, like I've shown my partner if I was write, you know, writing a piece that was mm-hmm. difficult or I was just having some challenges. But you uh, saying that it's that your partner doesn't count now makes me feel like my answer doesn't count because it is my <laughs> partner who has been reading my book chapters. Yeah, but it's funny because she doesn't read the kind of things that I write typically. So sure. she's a huge reader and she has many graduate degrees. So it's like it's very <laughs> informed uh, and worked for many years as an editor. So it's very informed feedback. But mm-hmm. it's also like I'm very conscious that like she's not necessarily familiar with the landscape that I'm working in typically. It might be a bit different with the book because she definitely reads books. Um, but recently, a very close friend who's, you know, whose intelligence and smarts and knowledge I trust very much has been very much hinting that she'd like to, you know, <laughs> be part of my of my reading circle. Uh, and and I, of course, I want her to. But it's yeah. like you said, it's such like 
this is somebody I've known for decades. It's somebody I trust, you know, with my life. But it's my baby that isn't quite born yet, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it's, don't look at it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, I really want the benefit of mm-hmm. her smarts, but, like, it's also so hard. Yeah, so. where it's like, it has to be somebody that I know won't think less of me after yes. you read something that potentially could be bad. Yeah, I mean, and, and you said, no, you know, nobody's ever said, oh, man, no. And of course they haven't because you're a fantastic writer, but you also kind of want to know that they will because that's what you right, really need, right. right? And that's mm-hmm. the true fear that somebody will say, I know you think that this is ready. Mm-hmm. It's not. And, you know, because that's, kind of what's always somewhere so you know is that's what that evil little yeah critic at the back of my head is always saying I have um I have a meeting with my publisher in three days and my editor has been very nice and was like they they think it's great we only have like their copy notes or whatever but we're still like having a meeting to talk about the text and I keep having these like disaster scenarios in my head I'm I'm sure that's not the case but I can't help but be afraid of it well I'm sure it will go marvelously (laughs) thank you That's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like How to Do It and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Isaac Butler and to our fabulous producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Isaac's conversation with composer Fabian Almazan. Until then, get back to work. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.